Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest, Gabriella Barnstone, is a yoga therapist with a practice in New York City. She recounts how her father's mental illness and his eventual suicide becomes the catalyst for her abandoning a career as a dancer and choreographer, ultimately finding her own healing as she helps others. Please welcome Gabriella Barnstone. Welcome, Gabriella, to Phoenix Tales. I always start the conversation off by asking one question, and that question is, has there been an event in your life, personal or professional, that was challenging that might have redirected the course of your life? There's some of the questions you have to sort of like think back and be like, well, which one would I choose? And this one is just just so glaring and clear in my mind. And that was the suicide of my father in 2008. And it's just one of those events that just feels like your whole life was leading up to that. And then everything else after that was sort of a result of that major event. It just feels like your whole life was going in that direction. We've actually had one other guest whose father also committed suicide when she was 27. So if you ever want to go back, you should definitely give it a listen. So can I ask, did he suffer from depression or were there any signs? Yes. So we are a little bit like the Hemingways. We have a little bit of a legacy in my family. It started with my father's father. My father actually never met his father because he committed suicide when my father was in the womb. We definitely have a history of bipolar. There's bipolar one and two. So my uncle, my grandfather was a lot older than my grandmother. My grandmother was the same age as his son at the time. (laughs) He was a jeweler in Maine and he was traveling on a business trip and he met my grandmother in Mexico. My grandmother is Mexican. They met, they fell in love, they got married and they had one child. And then my father was the second child. My grandfather was, it was very dramatic. He was at a famous old hotel in, I think it's Colorado Springs. And he threw himself out the window. And my grandmother was in her early 20s or something and had one child and then had another, you know, that she was pregnant. And then this happened. In those days, it wasn't being treated. Is the brother of this uncle that I'm telling you about, who was actually a pretty famous architect in Houston, Texas. And then he also, same age, there's like this sort of like dangerous age range that I think people like middle age, you know, 50s to 60s to 70s. He was very successful. He might have been in like a little lull. I think that tends to happen when there's financial strains. And he was actually medicated. My uncle was on medication. So he broke that mold, but he still committed suicide. I think he had taken himself off his medication and then he committed suicide. So he was my father's half brother and was older than my father. So my grandfather had a previous marriage. And so Howard Barnstone, my uncle that committed suicide, he was the 
child from the previous marriage. It was the same father, we should say. So getting back to my father, in terms of like the signs, he was definitely bipolar. He was one of those people that just refused to go to the doctor ever about anything. He was a very sort of like physically kind of healthy guy, but he was definitely had mental issues and illness. So he really wasn't the kind of person who would go to the doctor and get treatment for anything, much less for his mental illness. So when we were little, it manifested in episodes. And then there was also the sort of like the manic highs. So we got a lot of that, that rage and then the manic highs, but he wasn't the type that would go into these like long bouts of depressive episodes, you know, where it was like the kind of thing where like people don't get out of bed. So we didn't see that version. We saw the sort of scary anger thing. And then we saw the manic thing where he was, I mean, my dad was like super charming and funny and intelligent. So when he was on, he was great. So it's one of those things. And again, when you say it out loud, I'm sure from the outside, it's like, well, didn't you know it was coming? And wasn't it obvious? There were efforts to try to get him to get medication and go to the doctor, especially towards the end where I think that was like the first time that we had saw him go into a depressive episode. This was, by the way, this was 2008 during the financial crisis. I think because we hadn't seen him in those like sort of deep depressive episodes, I think that no one thought that he would actually do that. And I know that in retrospect, it's obvious somehow when you're in it, I'm sure there's a lot of denial in there too. There weren't like these sort of like multiple attempts of suicide. That last period where he was like really down and I never heard him like that before. And I know that my brother was trying to get him to see someone. There was absolutely signs. But even with the signs, for some reason, we didn't think he would do it. When you talk about, and it's interesting to me that the other guest whose father committed suicide, his sister had committed suicide as well. So there's this strange sort of family lineage of that. I'm assuming that you're saying that your grandfather was also bipolar and your uncle was and your father was. Is that right? Yes, we're assuming that because I think my uncle who was medicated, I think he was officially diagnosed and then the other two not officially. So we're just assuming that they were. So when you go back to your childhood and you talk about the periods of sort of the rage or the euphoria, right? It's one or the other and sort of extreme sides of the coins. How did that impact you in terms of, I'm assuming the trauma of that and the fears and the uncertainty, because you never know what you're walking into when you come home. How did that impact you in terms of the way you process the world or the ways in which you've navigated the world? It's something that I think about all the time. On the one hand, I can think like, it makes me fearful of some things. It makes me insecure. I feel like when I started off in my young life, I wish I had been a little bit more secure. I don't know if I, and still, you know, to this day, should attribute it to that or not, but I somehow feel like there's something about having support and having like you said, just certain expectations of what's going to happen. And then on the other hand, it is fortify the word. Like it actually really does make you adaptable and strong in a way. Like there's this other side of my personality, like maybe you've seen it, Juliana, that was bold and just go for things and just really try to like carve out my own way and take chances. I think that comes from that too. Those kind of situations that are scary, like really make you adaptable in some ways. I'm assuming your father had a professional career. Mm -hmm. Do you think that his 
bipolarism, did it affect him professionally in any way? I mean, did you ever see any fallout on a professional level where perhaps financially your family was impacted because of his illness? Oh my God, yes. It's interesting because I'll say on the one hand, this is something that I think about. I'll just say it, like the fact that he was a man in the the 80s, he was able to get away with so much, you know what I mean? And then on the other hand, we also kind of had a version of that. One time he like bought some like vintage like Ferrari. I remember like a vintage Ferrari or something. And we were just like, what? Like that wasn't the kind of thing that we had, you know what I mean? And then they were like gone because he had this, <laughs> like, I've got to bring up my mom because my mom, who was the chief editor of Texas Monthly, she actually left her job so she could take care of us. And then after that, she started working for my dad or working with my dad, I should say. I'm sure that she held that ship up. I can only imagine like being an adult now, I can only imagine the stuff that she had to do to sort of like make sure that people didn't see the side of him that she didn't want them to see. I think there were episodes where he like blow up at his secretaries and stuff. So like I said, that's the kind of thing I think you could get away with more then than now. What kind of business did they have? My father was in real estate for a while. And he was very into cities and city planning, really trying to build cities like denser. And in fact, he's a big reason why, you know, and some people don't like it, but he's a big reason why Austin is a little bit more like has a denser downtown, Austin, Texas. He like saw that there was going to be this like, there was only so much geography and that the, all the people moving there, there was going to be a traffic problem and that he wanted a vital downtown where people could walk around. So he's a real estate developer. He was on the city council. And then I remember he ran for mayor. I think he lost by a very thin margin. There's a lot of things that he did for Austin that make Austin sort of like what it is today. So I find that remarkable, just knowing what I know about people that are bipolar, that he was functioning at such a high level, even amid the bouts of manic and euphoria, right? So do you think that he was able to stave off any recognition that he was mentally ill because he was so high functioning? Or do you think that unbeknownst to you and the rest of the world, the amount of effort it took for him to be so functioning in the world because bipolar is really, really serious and very hard to manage for people, even on medication. So on the one hand, it's like, because he had the support system around him, I would say like my mom and probably anybody else who was sort of like holding him up. And because as a male in the eighties could get away with things that like people couldn't get away with now, I think that that's part of it. And then on the other hand, one of the most like moving things I've ever read is this letter that he wrote. He was thinking about it in the spring of 2008. And this is when he wrote this email that my brother later found that he never sent. And then when he did commit suicide in the summer of 2008, my brother thought it was appropriate to send this letter to everyone. And I read it and I didn't realize how much pain he was in because I only saw the anger. And because I only saw the mania mostly. And then, like I said, at the very end, I saw him depressed in a way that I hadn't seen him like that before. Reading that letter was so heartbreaking, mostly because I was like, finally made me realize because I think up until then, I was like 37 when he died. I wasn't super young or anything. But up until then, I was like, why are people mean? And why are they mean to me? 
And then when I read that letter, I was like, no, wait, people who are mean are in pain. That is what it is, you know, made me really see like when people are sort of like lashing out at you, which, you know, happens to everybody, right? We all are on both sides of that. But when people are lashing out at you, it's because they're suffering. And I didn't understand that until I read that letter. That's so fascinating. Feel as though what you're saying is the letter was opening the curtain for you, right? To see all the nonsense behind that was never revealed to you as you were growing up. Did you ever have a moment of just sheer regret or anger that he never shared that aspect of his illness with you so that you could kind of understand it and contextualize it in a different way? You would think that I did. But when he committed suicide, my father and I had the type of relationship where when he was like raging, I was the only one that would stand up to him. We had our moments for sure. I think because I had confronted him when he died, obviously there's like plenty of regret that goes around that. But I didn't feel like I haven't made my peace with him. I just felt so sad for him. That was the only thing that was there for me. I know that that also sounds strange, but the only thing I felt was like this sadness for him. I just couldn't believe how much pain that he must have been in and that I didn't see that. And then of course, but I wasn't like mad at him for not sharing stuff because I was just felt so bad for him. When people commit suicide, we understand that it's done in a moment of incredible pain, pain that other people can't comprehend. And then the fallout for the people that are in their lives, i.e. family, children, parents, there has to be a moment. I mean, was there a moment for you where you just felt this sort of anger that he did that, that he couldn't find another way to help himself deal with the pain? I was only sad. I think because he and I had had so many like contentious moments, you know, that I'd already sort of like expressed my anger at him and that I was only sad. I don't know if this is relevant, but my cousin, the son of my uncle who committed suicide, as soon as I got the call from my mom that it happened, the next phone call I got was from my cousin. He said, Gabby, I just want you to know that there's nothing you could have done. I thought that was like the most generous thing that anyone could do because he knew where the mind goes, because he had been through it. And he was just like, I just want you to know that there's nothing you could have done. And I was like, oh. Again, nobody can comprehend the amount of pain. Nobody could really help in any sort of way that was meaningful. Going back though, do you ever have a moment where you think to yourself, gosh darn it, if he had only just tried medication? Oh, oh, yes, yes, for sure, for sure. Especially because to this day, I see things and I'm like, my dad would have loved that. And especially because, you know, it happened during the financial crisis and it's like, life is so fluctuating and there's so many things that have happened since then. (laughs) Of course, to this day, I'm just kind of like, my dad would have loved to see that. Yeah, and probably because he never sought treatment. It's one thing because your uncle was medicated, was trying to deal with the issue and still lost the battle. Whereas your father never, ever really tried to find any help for himself. And if you kind of unpack your childhood, my mind would just go to imagining all the things that could have been different 
had he been trying to help himself and be a little bit more even keeled in his life. Right. Because he was a brilliant guy when people were like, they couldn't believe it. They didn't know that side of him. After this incredibly life-altering moment, have you had time to also think about A, the family lineage of mental illness, and B, did it make you start to look at yourself differently, like looking for road signs, perhaps that you may also fall under the curse of this? Oh, for sure. So before my dad committed suicide, I actually didn't go to therapy until I was like 29, which I don't know, seems like to me now, but especially given my childhood. But I remember when I went and that was one of the first things I asked her because before I started yoga as a profession, I was an artist, I was a choreographer. And so with that lifestyle, like it's very conducive to highs and lows. There's a reason why people like me with my kind of background are are attracted to that. So I remember I asked my therapist point blank, do you think I'm bipolar? And she was like, no, I don't. It's like, I'm not diagnosed, but I feel like I have bipolar tendencies just because I haven't talked to him about it. But I do have a sibling that is diagnosed. So, but I feel like I'm like bipolar, like adjacent. (laughs) Is that a thing? Well, can I ask, do you suffer from depression? I won't say because I don't want to minimize that because how you define that is very specific. I would just say like I have manic tendencies, like depressive tendencies. So when my father died, this was an interesting thing. So I had just done my very first yoga teacher training the year before. The reason why I did that, even though I ended up going into it as a professional, I was like, is because now I have the tools to manage this. If I hadn't had just those tools that I'd gotten in my very first yoga teacher training, the sort of shift that I made was that I did one more show and I dedicated it to him. It was actually about his hometown of Nuevo Laredo. I was sort of doing the yoga teaching and the choreography at the same time at that point. I decided to just give up the artist life altogether and just do the yoga. That was a very conscious, I know for me, I don't force myself, <laughs> I'm just going to put it that way, to have balance. And and I still like to this day, and especially man with over the past two years, like I got to do so much to keep myself semi sane. What's that British dude, Russell Brand? I heard an interview with him because he is sober. He writes about that. And he talks about like all the things he has to do like in the morning just to like get them to a place. So I feel like I had to choose that as a profession, not just because I was getting a lot out of it teaching, but also because it was going to help me and that the artist's life was dangerous for me. When you talk about that, I find that really interesting. So you said something where you knew that it would help you. So as a yoga teacher, yoga therapist, how do you separate your need for your own healing through the work and not allowing that to become the only driving force in the ways in which you work? I remember that I was teaching like when it happened. I continued teaching and I remember that just like helped me so much. And I, I guess for me, the, the simple answer is just that focusing on other people is so relaxing for me <laughs> because it's like this break from my crazy head. I can focus for this one hour on trying to help this person, doing what I can 
to make this person feel better. That's all I need. Then I'll go back to like being crazy again. But it's just because I get a break from obsessing about myself. You're middle-aged now, right? Yeah, 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 solidly. (laughs) So does the specter of your the men in your family committing suicide around this period of their life, does that haunt you in any way? You're like, oh, I'm getting to the age. So I've had a lot of guests talk about parental death and especially those who lost their parents when their parents were young. And then they usually have children of their own. And that fear that my mom died at 45, maybe I won't make it to 45. When they make it past 45, it's like this moment of true sighing it out. Like, oh, yes, I was able to beat that weird specter of whatever that is. Are you finding that right now that you're in middle age and the history and that perhaps this is something that kind of haunts you a little bit? Oh, my God. If you type that question to me in the email, I'd write back like capital (laughs) Y-E-S and five exclamation points. I know I'm not the only one, but I had to do all this like shifting and I lost all this work and I had to start over and facing stuff about your marriage. And then I'm just going to say it like menopause. So with everything, I know we, we've all been struggling the past couple of years, but with all of that stuff, there is that part of me that's like, oh, well, maybe up until now, I've always struggled just functioning and <laughs> part semi-sane, but it did feel like a specific kind of struggle in the past couple of years. And so there is part of me that's like, maybe I've just sort of like skirted this thing. Maybe all this stuff could just like pop up. Like maybe the demons could just like pop up and be there. And maybe I've just sort of like skirted it up until now, for sure. There's all that going on. So of course, the answer for me has been like, up the ante on everything. (laughs) Like I've got my like twice a week, like meditation group. I've been doing like all these like fitness things. Like it's interesting. Going back to that moment when you found out your father had committed suicide, you kind of sought refuge in yoga. Were there other things that enabled you to cope through the grieving process and also the process of trying to, for yourself, unpack all of it, you know, not just his suicide, but your childhood and trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together in a way that made more sense to you at that point with that kind of information? And on the one hand, I feel like that's like a lifelong process, you know, these kind of things like always stay with you. So I went to the funeral, you know, I stayed for a few days. God bless my brothers who like dealt with so much. And then I went back and did my show. I know that probably sounds like avoidance or whatever, but oh man, did I need to do that? That helped me get through that month. Teaching helped sustain me. And then in terms of longer term unpacking, I feel like I'm just you know, things will come up because I actually was not in therapy at the time. I'd gone to therapy for like maybe like four years and then I stopped and I wasn't in therapy at the time. And then I didn't start again until like um, a few years ago. And so I feel like even today, things will come up. I feel like it's a lifelong process of unpacking. It's so huge that like there's no sort of like processing it and then being done with it. And then if you could kind of turn back the clock and say one thing to your dad, what do you think that would be? Um, I'm just thinking for a second because, because I've never thought about that. I would say the thing, you know, what I'd say, Julian, is the thing that like I have to tell myself and the thing, the thing that we tell each other that teachers tell each other and Buddhist teachers and which is that 
what you're feeling now and is not what you're going to be feeling later. I would say that things change. I don't think I would say you're going to be okay, anything like that. I would say like, just know that now is not what you're always going to be feeling. Oh, that's a great place to end. So I get to the very last question. And the question I'm going to ask is, is there a song that has resonated with you or feels as if it had been written for or about you? And what is the song and why? Oh, my God. Is there a song that was written for me? Or resonates with you? I always told my husband and my friend what songs I want to play at my funeral. (laughs) I don't know if that's, (laughs) is that weird? No, I've done the same thing. So there you go. So one is um, Iggy Pop, Passenger, which is a song that I love because it's just about experiencing life. That's what it is to me. I like the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's Despair. Do you know that song? Because mm-hmm. it's all about sort of like facing despair and sort of like conquering it. That bluegrass song, Keep on the Sunny Side, which by the way, is not what it sounds like. It doesn't mean like just be happy all the time. There's something about it that suggests like effort, you know? <laughs> um, so how can people find you if they have questions? I'm sure your episode will elicit some responses. So could you tell us how people can reach you? I have a website, yogaphysical.com. There's a contact button there. I think I'm one of the only people on the planet that's not on social media, but who knows? Maybe that'll change. So you could contact me there. Wonderful. Thank you so much for doing this, Gabriella. Thank you, Juliana. Thank you so much. That was fascinating. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience when I got tired of waiting. Then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it. I'ma say this because we gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack. Focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, would have. Feeling like I should. I'm